0: chaos. It's a word that today's guest has embraced and also been in the midst of for his 40-year military career. On this episode, former U.S. Secretary of Defense General James Mattis on the principles of leadership in the midst of chaos. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 440. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave stahoviak Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. How do you handle the toughest situations? Any leader doing work worth doing ultimately finds themselves navigating challenging waters. Today's guest is no stranger to challenges or To chaos. I'm glad to welcome to the show Jim Mattis. He served more than four decades as an infantry officer in the United States Marines, rising to the rank of four star general. In 2017, he was nearly unanimously confirmed as the 26th Secretary of Defense of the United States, a position he held for almost two years. Today, he is a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the author of the new book with Bing West, Call Sign Chaos Learning to Lead. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Coaching for Leaders.
1: Well, thanks, Dave. It's good to be on your program. I've listened to you before, got a lot out of it.
0: Well, the honor is mine, sir, to get to talk to you. And I was thinking about just some of the things that have happened in the recent events. And you were at the Al Smith dinner not too long ago, giving a speech. And you said that your parents would have been surprised to see you headlining an event with so many clergy in attendance. What would have surprised your parents?
1: Well, I think I enjoyed a little bit of a huck fin kind of growing up, always out in the desert around where I grew up, out hunting, fishing, hiking with the Boy Scouts in the Cascade Mountains. I wasn't the kind of person to be in what would be considered intellectual circles recess was my favorite subject. So I think they would have been a little, a little taken aback by it.
0: There's so much we could discuss about your career. And I'm wondering if maybe we could zero in on a few of the leadership lessons of a few key moments that I think capture a lot of what I suspect you want future leaders to be able to discover from your career and your journey. And I'm wondering if we could start by going all the way back to 1990. You are in the Saudi Arabian desert preparing for an invasion that would become the first Gulf War, you employed a technique that you refer to in the book as focused telescopes. What's a focused telescope?
1: Well, the challenge I faced was information flow. All leaders probably have somewhere in their organization every bit of information they need that's necessary to make decisions. It's not complete, but it's sufficient. So how do you actually open up the pipes of information flow to make sure you're getting that information in time to inform your decisions? Now, of course, you have what are called subordinate junior officers underneath you. I was a lieutenant colonel in an assault battalion that was to open the path through the minefields. But when they're under fire, it's rather riveting. It does not incite you to want to pick up the phone and call your boss just to let him know what's going on. I would take young officers who had were very tactful, but also very capable, I'd usually have breakfast or meet with them at some point during the day. And they would go out to the units that were actually executing the mission. And their only job was to clarify and confirm what it was I was trying to convey, making certain that the attacking commanders knew what it was that we were trying to do. Don't don't forget the mission here. It's easy to do when you're getting distracted in any competitive situation on the football field or the marketplace or on a battlefield, and then to report back to me. Their only job was to keep me informed, whereas the unit commanders had to fight their units, stay alive themselves, and make a lot of decisions. So this was opening up the information flow to me in real time that would allow me to make better decisions. What gave you the idea to do something like that? Well, in the Marines, for everybody who joins the Marines, you've got a certain number of books you have to read. And then every time you get promoted, basically they hand you a new reading list. I mean, when you make sergeant, you get a new reading list. When you make major, you get a new reading list. Generals, they say, congratulations, you'll never eat poorly again. Here's your next reading list. So those readings, I found that other officers had employed this from officers in European wars to those in the jungles. So I got it from the readings.
0: And it's interesting that you employed this throughout your career and even heading up Central Command as a four-star general. You were also still finding ways to do this, of finding trusted confidants who would then be willing to eh, tell you the things you weren't necessarily hearing through the normal chains of command.
1: Yeah. I mean, trust is the coin of the realm for any leader. Once your team knows that you care about them, then they'll care how much you know. And that means the trust is starting to build. And that means people are going to start responding, knowing that they're respected, knowing that they're heard, but knowing too they have a leader who can make decisions based on the best information. It's really critical that you have that sort of input from people and also from those who at times are a pain in the neck. We call them mavericks in the military. And you have to protect those guys because what they will do is they will be the ones who probably sooner than the enemy can warn you of the dangers in a culture that can get so unified behind a goal that it can't see when it's time for change. And so you need a few of these recalcitrant folks on your team too, not where they're up for themselves, but where they're trying to improve the team and sometimes have some difficult messages. So you kind of pull all that together into your decision-making when you're a leader.
0: Ten years later, it's late 2001. It's just months after September Mm -hmm. 11th. You are in Afghanistan this time on the tail of Osama bin Laden. And intelligence is strongly indicating that he's in the Tora Bora Mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan. You're in command of the Marines there. What happened?
1: Well, what had happened was I had shifted from one commander above me, the naval admiral commanding the naval fleet out in the Middle East, to under an army commander, because we'd been ashore for a while. It was now time for us to straighten out what were the initial command relationships to get us inserted under Navy command and control. Now the Marines were going to come under the army command and control. And I did not spend the time getting to know my commander when the intelligence came in, it said Osama bin Laden was, we were very sure, was in the Tora Bora region. Immediately, I knew we should try and stop him from escaping to Pakistan. I mean, that was very clear. So I'd studied the Geronimo campaign on the southwest border with the U.S. cavalry back in the late 1800s and saw the way they put in heliograph stations, communication stations, in order to keep track of what's going on on the border. So I determined, we used computers this time, where we would put outposts to block the escape routes out of Tora Bora into Pakistan. And I was working very hard. We were moving the cold weather gear in off the ships because we'd be operating at very high altitude, organizing the helicopter inserts and all. I forgot to keep my boss informed that we were doing all this. And when it came time to go, I caught my senior flat-footed who were not aware of the detailed situation the urgency of the situation and the plans we had the capability we had to block the escape and push up the valleys and getting so it was a reminder to me that at times you've got to be asking three questions that i insisted my subordinates ask every day but you had to ask yourself what do i know who needs to know have i told them and those feedback triggers would have kept me more aligned with my boss. As it turned out, we were not able to react in time. And as we know, Osama bin Laden escaped to Pakistan, and it took years before our Navy SEALs were able to get him.
0: If you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently?
1: That's a great question, because the thing about leading is you're always learning. Each circumstance is different. But the first thing I would have done was called my boss and laid out what my priorities were and say, are those aligned with you? I would have kept him more informed. I was still using the same naval reporting, which is very, very command-centric in the U.S. Navy. Every team has its own culture. The Navy has a culture where the commander is the, the key person. The Army has a much stronger culture for staff work. I should have had my chief of staff and my staff More engaged with their staff, and that we had a solution to a problem that I think we would have agreed on. But I hadn't done that, and I knew in the future I would be more alert to that responsibility.
0: A few years after that, it's 2003, you're commanding a division during the invasion of Iraq, this time to remove Saddam Hussein from power. The initial invasion you describe in the book seems to go pretty much as planned except that one of your colonels seems to be hesitating to move with haste. And you say in the book that this is a hard thing to write about, but that it's also so fundamental to leadership to address issues when they go wrong. What happened in that case?
1: Well, the challenge of combat is difficult to describe. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was one of our most articulate justices of the Supreme Court been an infantry officer in the Civil War and he said talking to other veterans, the experience of war is incommunicable. And so if he couldn't communicate it well, I don't know how well I can answer your question. Okay, but basically this was an officer I admire to this day. He was a very good officer. He was noble in every aspect. He loved his troops. But it's hard to send, especially when you're dead tired hired to a degree. I've never been anywhere else. It's hard then to send the troops you care so much about into fights. And I just sensed that it was difficult to maintain the tempo. My division was of 23,000 sailors and Marines was divided into three infantry regimental combat teams, supported by a lot of others, of course. And here was one third of my division under this colonel's command But the tempo of his operations fell short of what I needed in order to keep the entire division deep inside Iraq at this point, engaged with the enemy. So eventually, I determined I was asking him to do something that was simply beyond his, I would say, his moral ability to do. He was tactically brilliant. He was a very fine officer in terms of his leadership. It was just the tempo, the urgency to move against the enemy did not match what was needed at that time.
0: For me, reading that in the book was such a story of leadership and the right time and the right moment. Here's someone, as you described, cared so much about the troops, and yet in that moment, the mission first and foremost was move with haste, and that wasn't able to happen. And you write... You cannot order someone to abandon a spiritual burden that they've been wrestling with.
1: Well, exactly. When you come right down to it, it's all about the human being when you're putting teams together. And war is a very, very harsh auditor of everything, of your recruiting, of your equipment, of your training, of the leadership. And what I couldn't do is have two of my three regiments carrying the burden for the fighting. I needed everyone in the fight all the time. And what you do is delegate decision-making to the lowest competent level. And I knew I had to delegate decision-making for these regiments down to the colonels who commanded them, but it had to be consistent with my intent, which had to do with going fast enough that the enemy couldn't dig back in, that we would just confront them with cascading dilemmas. And so that's why I I took the decision I had to take.
0: A year later, 2004, you're in Fallujah. Some of our listeners will remember that there was a day that uh, four Allied contractors were killed and the burned bodies were hung in the middle of the city. You had a plan to recover the bodies and, in a very limited way, track down those responsible. And you were cautious, also from the lessons of World War II and Vietnam, about attacking the entire city. President Bush, however, made the decision to attack. You write, Great nations don't get angry. Military action should be undertaken only to achieve specific strategic effects. In this case, we were in an extremely violent political campaign over ideas And we were trying to treat the problem of Fallujah like a conventional war. I believe we had a more effective, sustainable approach for the situation we faced. But that was the order. Attack. You made your objections clear. And you say in the book that some might urge a senior officer to resign in a situation like this. You didn't. What kept you from doing that?
1: Well, first of all, in the military, we have civilian control. In other words, you may not like some things, but that's why they're called orders, not likes. When our elected commander-in-chief, when the civilian leadership says we must do this, then you keep faith with the Constitution and you get on with it is the bottom line. I think that what happened here was understandable, but having read about combat and built-up areas, knowing this was a city that we would have to evacuate over 300,000 innocent people out of in order to go after the significant number of terrorists who had taken over the city. I'd read enough history, and and history is just a, a warning system. If you study it, it won't give you all the answers, but it'll warn you what you'd better ask about. And in this case, my idea was, let us work with the other tribes in town who were repulsed by this terrorist activity. We had spies in the city. We could use them to hunt down those who had done this heinous act, but there was not a need to go into the city knowing the brutality of urban fighting. And eventually, we were ordered in, and against my wishes, once the attack had started, we were stopped deep inside the city, our lads in house-to-house fighting. And this goes back to a point about coaching. I could generally command the, in this case, 23,000 troops, probably in about 15 minutes a day, write an order, you know, request certain support from others, that sort of thing. But all the rest of my time was spent coaching. So I would be down there coaching with these troops about why we were doing it, what we were trying to do, that sort of thing. And closing the gap between a remote two-star general and the youngest sailors and Marines, the 18-year-olds who were going into the city and fighting it out. This is what you do to put subordinate success at a top priority. Whether or not you agree with the order is different. I could have quit and resigned, certainly. But the Lance corporals, 19 years old. They couldn't have quit. And I wasn't going to leave them on the battlefield.
0: You did send a strong statement back up the chain of command, and the statement was, don't stop us once we go in, right?
1: That's exactly what I said.
0: Sadly, Fallujah sets off a powder keg, one that you and other military leaders had anticipated from from some of the history. As you mentioned, you continue to invade, and you get to the point where you're probably days away from capturing the city. And then the order comes to do exactly what you requested that they didn't do, which is to stop the attack. Reading this in the book, it's really an incredible moment. Here you are in this invasion that you didn't want to be in in the first place, making the request to, if you're going to send us in, please don't stop us once you do. And then you're days away from getting to a very key objective, and then you're asked to stop. Anybody who's ever disagreed strongly with the direction from their boss or organization, perhaps know something of what you felt that day. What's in the book is what happened next militarily. What's not as much in the book is what happened in your head. I mean, what did you do to deal with
1: the anger? Right. It's, it's a great question because we learn most about ourselves when we have to deal with something that's probably the most difficult and especially as coaches, as leaders, that's when you really find out what you're made of. In this case, I've always believed in being very honest with subordinates. Don't patronize them. Don't tell the juniors everything's fine. And we had been very open with the troops about what their mission was. We adopted the physician's oath of first do no harm, try not to injure any innocent people who are left in the city. We got most of them out, but there were still some We had over 300,000 out, but there were still several thousand in the city. And the troops knew what we were trying to do because I'd been very open and honest with them. So when the order came to halt in place, to negotiate, and eventually to pull back and surrender the ground that we had won and in many cases, in, in almost all cases, we'd lost troops seizing that ground. It was hard on the troops, but because we'd worked hard on keeping the trust of them. They didn't lose their spirit. For example, one young man had a camera put in his face and he was told, boy, you must feel terrible. You're ordered to pull back after all this fighting. He was just a dirty, filthy, dirty, blonde-haired young man with his machine gun over his shoulder. And he's obviously from down south from his accent. He just looked at the camera and said, doesn't matter. We'll just hunt him down somewhere else and get him. But You know, that just shows that somehow the spirits of the troops held through this very, very testing time. And I think that's that's when you you look at all the things that you've been doing. And that's when the auditor of war tells you if you're passing as a leader or not. It wasn't me as a leader. It was those junior NCOs and junior officers who kept that young man's faith that we were not just being foolish. Yes, it was a tough decision. And in the information age, sometimes our political leaders are put under enormous pressure. In this case, it probably was false pressure because the enemy did a very good propaganda campaign saying that we were a bunch of cowboys just going in killing everyone. Actually, it was the terrorists who were acting that way, not the Marines. But they won in the information space, but they did not beat the spirit of the Marines. And in the Marines, we consider the troops' spirits, their attitude, as a weapon system. There's nothing that is more important. Not even the weapon they carry is more important than their attitude going into the fight. And so for them not to go cynical, not to identify with victimhood, but to say for like the young machine gunner said, doesn't matter, we'll just hunt them down somewhere else. That was really a statement about why you don't quit when you're in a senior position. You keep faith with your troops, and you do your best for them.
0: Part of what I hear you saying there is you spent so much time as a leader and as a commander doing the coaching, building the relationships. And then when a very tough situation happened, in a way, they were there then to support you and keep your spirits up. And, and you say this throughout the book, that you take so much energy and pride and motivation yourself from the culture of the troops. And so they're giving to you in the way that you've given to them.
1: Yeah. You know, George Washington had a coaching style of leadership that's always served me well. And it's very methodical. It almost sounds boring. It's listen and learn, help, and then lead. In other words, you show respect, you listen to your troops, you learn from them, they have a lot to teach you if your mind is open to them, and then you figure ways to help them, and they come up with, well, this is the problem they have, they don't have enough ammo, or they they need more air support, or whatever, and as a young officer, you learn this, and as you listen, and learn, and help, that makes you the leader. You're made an officer by an act of Congress in the U.S. military, but your troops are the ones who determine, are you a leader or not? They decide that. And any officer is assigned a position as a leader because he can't do the job on his own. He needs the team to do the job. And I think that making sure that you have that listening and learning going on and the troops know that if they were in your position, they'd be doing the same thing. And if that level of trust is there, then they won't waste time going cynical or or throwing their hands up in the air and say it's all for naught. You strengthen the bonds, basically, and you just keep working with them as if they're co-equal to you in terms of wanting to carry out the mission.
0: Having studied your work, listening to some of your speeches, other interviews you've done, and reading this book, I come away with two big reactions. One is the reaction of gratitude for you and your work. It wasn't the reaction I expected to come away with, and yet I find myself with that gratitude and awe of what you've done. And also, I come away with a healthy sense of, I guess the word would be shock, at the disconnect between political strategy and the reality of what's happening militarily in some of the situations over the last few decades, and looking back now and seeing both sides of what was going on in the media and also what you were experiencing as a commander on the ground. And I'm struck by the message in the book of the importance of learning and the importance of teaching future leaders about strategy. You have, I think, close to 7,000 books in your personal library, in your home, and you write that we have been fighting on this planet for 10,000 years. It would be idiotic and unethical to not take advantage of such accumulated experiences. If you haven't read hundreds of books, you will be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't enough to sustain you. History teaches that we face nothing new under the sun. Books have just guided your career in so many ways. For the leaders who want to not make some of the mistakes that past leaders have and really want to grow. I'm curious, are there three subject areas or maybe even some specific books that you haven't gone through this journey of reading over the last 40 years that you'd recommend to us?
1: Well, I think how I would respond to that, Dave, is one, it's always you should look back and learn from your mistakes and don't become arrogant with monday morning quarterbacking when you have more information but studying history is an early warning system it will warn you how others have dealt with some similar situations either successfully or unsuccessfully so it will tell you you know what questions to ask what to be alert to it won't give you all the answers but it'll certainly help you and when things go wrong Or when you're tapped on the shoulder and given a job to do, I often could reflect back on some mental image from the reading and apply that and more swiftly move in an effective manner to deal with the situation. One of the books that I would suggest for any leader would be Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. And the reason is not that some Roman emperor dead for 2,000 years is going to give you the answers. Today, but it will tell you how to deal with intractable problems or people who you're having difficult times communicating with. For example, political leaders in our country are rightly elected because of the human aspirations of our people. We want better education for our children. We want infrastructure so that our economy can grow. And then in comes These people with wars, grim realities into the council saying, here's what's going on. You were attacked on 9-11. Here's what it's going to take to defeat this enemy. And Marcus Aurelius showed me how you reconcile these two polarities of human aspirations for a better life here at home with the realities of a world that does not always like the American dream and does not respect a government of the people, by the people, for the people. That freedom is anathema to them. A second book I would suggest would be Ulysses Grant's personal memoirs. They were published, by the way, by Mark Twain. But the reason I bring it up is this book shows you the doubts of a leader and how he grows into his job. And I think that one point all coaches have to eventually confront is certainly ask a lot of questions. But once you're in execution of the game, of the marketplace, of the battle, you can doubt your doubts more than you should doubt your beliefs. In other words, in Ulysses Grant, you see a man who overcomes the doubts about his own capabilities, his own knowledge and this sort of thing. And it goes right into his presidency, by the way. It's not just about military leadership. It's how he executes his time as president, keeping us out of other wars and and trying to make certain that racial discrimination does not take root and his challenges trying to stop that sort of thing. The other book I would recommend would probably be Mandela's book and about how he brought back together, a country that had been taken apart by apartheid over many, many decades, and how did he actually create a country that could come out of that scorching time, and frankly, to quote Abraham Lincoln, with malice for none and charity for all. In other words, what leaders have to deal with at times are very, very tough situations. But you can do it, and I often found those kind of leaders and what they faced reassuring that what I was facing was nowhere near as tough as some of them and what they had faced in their time. So I'd I'd just roll up my sleeves and go back to work after referring to those books.
0: To say that the last few years have been eventful for you in your career would probably be an understatement. As you say so much in your writing, the best leaders are constantly... Learning and growing since you retired from the marines, what have you changed your mind about
1: yeah it's, it's an interesting question because you can become myopic as a military leader I was basically after nine eleven especially I was either fighting in Afghanistan or in Iraq or getting ready to go back or just returning you know i I was very much focused there and and after my time in the Marines, I drove across country and I would stop in small towns. I kind of took my time coming coming back to the Pacific Northwest. And I was taken aback by the level of anger and frustration inside our own country. I'd always thought of the big threats to America were the terrorists outside or during the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union. What's really changed for me David, it, it's been the the anger and the frustration. I understand during elections, we divide into parties and we vote for who we think is the right person. And a lot of people are independent. And they, they switch from party to party. And, you know, sometimes it's not real civil. You know, we say, hey, I'm smart and you're dumb and that sort of thing. But when the election's over, it's no longer a time for division. Then we have to go back to rolling up our sleeves like we have in the past and working together to solve problems. And what's really changed for me is a sense that the bigger threat to America today is our internal division and our need for admired leaders, for coaches, for coaches who can coach the implementation of the freedoms of our Constitution and our form of government so we can coach people to understand that the person you disagree with might actually be right once in a while. You got to listen to each other. Follow George Washington's approach to leadership. Listen, learn from others. Don't just listen long enough to reject them, but listen and learn. Show respect of uh, friendliness and then help them. Help them understand your position. Maybe be hard on the issues. No problem. But then we have to lead the country for the good of the next generation. And that that's probably the biggest thing that changed for me, David, is this concern about how we are today, dealing with one another in America, which is still the the greatest country on Earth. But we don't take time to really stop and realize that, realize how fortunate we are.
0: Jim Mattis is the author of Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. Mr. Secretary, thanks for your time.
1: Thank you, David. Thanks very much.
0: If anyone has permission to be giving lots of orders all day long, it's a general in a war zone. And yet you hear Jim Mattis telling us that command was 15 minutes a day. The rest of the time was spent coaching. If you, like me, are wanting to do a better job at bringing more coaching into your leadership, one of our past episodes I'd recommend to you is episode 284, The Way to Stop Rescuing People from Their Problems with my guest, Michael Bungay Stanier. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Coaching Habit. It's probably my favorite, most practical book for leaders of the last 10 years. It will help you step-by-step to start asking the questions that will help you to do a better job coaching. In episode 284, Michael and I talked about the trap that a lot of us find ourselves in as leaders who want to do well, who are high-achieving people of tending to rescue people from their problems, and we talk about how to get out of that habit and more importantly, what to replace it with. I'd recommend that episode as a starting point for you. Also recommended is episode 405, Develop Leaders Before You Leave with David Marquet. Also a military commander, David was the skipper of the USS Santa Fe in the United States Navy. He took the ship at the time when he assumed command. It was the worst performing ship in the Navy, and worked to create that ship to become one of the best performing ships in the Navy over the course of his command. He talks in detail in that episode on how they did it, what's the language he used, and the importance of having ownership for decisions at the lowest level of the organization possible. If you're looking for some key tactical ways to support what you've heard today from Jim, episode 405 is a great place for you to start. I'd also recommend episode 430, how to start seeing around corners with Rita McGrath. I was struck by the terminology of focus telescope that you heard Jim use in today's conversation of getting eyes and ears out into other parts of the organization in order to see what's happening. In the conversation on episode 430, Rita and I talked about how to see the future, and she used the analogy that snow melts from the edges. Oftentimes, as leaders in the traditional chain of command or the organizational structure, we don't see the changes coming because we are too close, we're too insulated from where we are. And The best leaders who want to see around corners learn to look out at the edges of the organization, at the edges of the industry. That is exactly what Jim was talking about with focused telescopes. If you want to get better at seeing around corners as well, episode 430 is one I'd recommend. And then finally, I was struck by what Jim said at the end about where he sees the greatest threat to America today and our own politics and the divisiveness that we find here in our country today. And uh, sadly, America is not alone. We are seeing that in other parts of the world as well. And I was thinking about who do I know? That is really great at bringing people together who do not agree. I've had the privilege uh, over the last almost decade to serve on the board of the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. My dear friend Sandy Morgan is the director of that center, and she was on episode 422 talking about influence through overlapping networks. I know nobody who is as gifted as Sandy of bringing people together who have all kinds of disagreements around faith, politics, and anything else you can imagine under the sun, and getting them to agree on something that they all believe is an important goal and bringing them together in conversation and collaboration and partnership. She is absolutely brilliant at doing that. And if you too would like to get better at heeding that call of finding the places of agreement and in spite of our differences moving forward, episode 422 is a great listen for you. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And when you set up your free membership on the website, you will get access To be able to search the entire back catalog by topic. One of the topics that this episode is going to be tagged under is coaching. We've done lots of conversations around coaching over the years. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That will give you access to all of those episodes. In addition, you'll also get access to my weekly leadership guide coming every Wednesday, where I find uh, some of the resources online during the week that I think will be helpful to you in your leadership development, as well as cross-referencing many of our past conversations that'll be helpful to you from what you're learning on this week's episode. Plus, all of my book notes. I have gone through Jim's book in detail and highlighted all of the key points I think he made about the leadership lessons along the way. Many of them we didn't have a chance to talk about in today's conversation. You can get full access to not only those, but all of the notes from every interview I've had over the last couple of years, all of those by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Willie Jackson to the show. We're talking about the journey towards diversity and inclusion. See you next week and have a great Monday. Take care.